great time last Sunday as we had an opportunity to be outside. We celebrated the, the birth of the church. It was interesting. So many folks came up to me afterwards and they said, wow, that's great. So how long has the church been going on for? Thinking it was like our anniversary. And I was like, no, no, no. We're like, we're celebrating the church, right? It's been like 2,000 years. Big, big celebration. And so uh, what a great time to uh, just connect with people and have some fun outside. And so um, it was a great, great time. The, excuse me, the week prior to that, uh, we finished unpacking uh, Paul's uh, first letter to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, we saw that um, Paul had planted that church, and, and uh, we spent about 12 weeks going through uh, Paul's first letter to Thessalonica. And I thought it'd be really wise for us to jump right into 2 Thessalonians because sometimes the further away we are from the first letter, we can really um, not appreciate the significance of the second letter. And so this morning, we're going to jump right back into Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a church that Paul started after um, uh, only a few weeks of being there. It was a, it was a young church that uh, God was doing a tremendous work in this church. And uh, it was a church that was situated in uh, the city of Thessalonica. It was, uh, was kind of like a modern-day sin city, actually. It was, it was a city that was known for a lot of pagan worship, a lot of sexual promiscuity, and... Um, all kinds of idolatry. It, it actually made its mark in the culture as the place that people would go and spend a lot of money to engage in a lot of the, the sinful practices of that day. Well, Paul comes in and he's preaching the gospel and people are embracing Christ and they're turning from these sinful ways. They're turning from these sinful practices and it's starting to hit the pocketbooks of the city of Thessalonica and they're not happy about it right? And so what ends up happening is they decide, let's try and shift this group of people out of the church. Let's kind of stall the church from moving forward. And they start all kinds of rumors about the Apostle Paul trying to discredit his ministry. And we see in 1 Thessalonians that Paul addresses a lot of that. And, and they even went so far as to uh, circulate a letter um, now, here's, here's what was going on. As, as, the, as the pocketbook of the city of Thessalonica was, was getting hit hard, they started persecuting the church. Things were getting difficult. The hardships were coming, right? And things were really getting very uncomfortable. But and while it was getting hard and uncomfortable, the church was still booming. It was, getting, it was like throwing gas on a fire. They started even more because the Holy Spirit was doing a tremendous work in the church. And so what the city, the people in governance did at that point is they circulated a letter that they, they, they said it was from the Apostle Paul, which it wasn't, saying that the reason the church was going through such difficult times was that they missed the rapture and they were going through the tribulation period and it freaked the church out. They're thinking, wait a minute, we've read about it. We heard about the day of the Lord. And so they started thinking, did God forget us? And did, and did, you know, did we miss something, right? And so Paul, um, in much of his content in First and Second Thessalonians, he, 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 is, he, um, he exposes the lie 
that they were in the midst of the tribulation. He uses that as a platform to provide comfort to the church that Jesus had not forgotten them, that, that he was still their soon coming king, right? And um, he also um, reminds them of, 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 of the comfort that we have in Christ. Now we covered a lot of that in, in, first, second, in first Thessalonians over the course of, of 12 weeks, and we're not going to spend as much time in Second Thessalonians, because the people in Thessalonica was, were a lot like, uh, a lot like us. In the sense that you'll see a lot of the content in Second Thessalonians served as a reminder of what he addressed in First Thessalonians, because sometimes when hardships come, sometimes when difficulty happens, we tend to forget. Right? And so Paul writes this letter only a couple of months after he sent the first letter to, to, to the church in Thessalonica. And there's some new parts to it that we're looking forward to diving into, but ultimately it was a reminder of what he had said before, that Jesus hasn't forgotten them, that Jesus is coming again, that regardless of the, the trials and tribulations that they're going through, Jesus was going to bring them through. And then he kind of ends it with um, some, some uh, final instructions for the church. And so my goal is, if the Lord would allow for me to do it, I'm looking forward to preaching through every book of the Bible at some point in time. And so I just kind of thought, what better time to jump into 2 Thessalonians just as we're jumping out of 1 Thessalonians. And so, again, it's a short three chapters, and we're going to jump right in today. And uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians. We're going to pick up in chapter 1 in verse 1. And we're going to cover the first five verses of this 10-verse chapter. Paul writes this, Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy. Silvanius is actually Silas. Um, Paul, Silvanius, and, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering." We're going to kind of park in this area here. I want to point your, your attention to what Paul says in verse 4. He says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. He says he boasted about the church in Thessalonica. Like a proud dad who's, who's boasting about his daughter or boasting about his son, we have the Apostle Paul that's boasting. He's, he's beaming with a, with a healthy pride about the church, and he's going to highlight five different things in this passage, these verses here, that he is boasting about. It's interesting, in the first epistle, Paul opens up in the first epistle with, with three things that he is thankful for in the church. And now as we enter into the second Epistle, he will highlight five things that he is boasting about or bragging about the church. This morning, we're going to take a look at these five things that Paul boasted about, and then we're going to, we're going to bring it home a little bit. We're going to begin to look inwardly to see 
If some of these characteristics that he is boasting about in the church are evident in our own lives, because if we can't take the word of God and apply it to our own lives, it stays somewhere in the cranial area and doesn't work its way to our hearts, right? And so we're going to look at these five things that Paul boasts about the church, and then we're going to kind of look inwardly and say, God, are these characteristics evident in me as well? The title of my message is A Church Worth Boasting About. A Church Worth Boasting About. Five reasons Paul boasted about the church. Number one, he boasted about their their genuine faith. We see that right there in verse 1, right when he he opens up this letter to the church. He says, Greetings to the Thessalonians who were in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that they were in God. In other words, their faith was genuine. They weren't just in Thessalonica. They weren't just in the church. They weren't just in relationship with one another, but they were in Christ Jesus. They were in God. It speaks of the the, the genuineness of their faith. This terminology is is very significant, and and it's very consistent uh, terminology that Paul uses in his writings to um, assign to the genuineness of our faith. He uses it in in Galatians chapter 3, for instance. He says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Therefore is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Speaking again of the genuineness, the authenticity of their faith. In writing to the Church of Rome in chapter 8, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? I mean, I'm thankful. There's no, because the flip side is true. There is therefore condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus, for those who are outside of Christ Jesus. He says to the church at Colossae, for you have, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And encouraging the church at Ephesus, he says in chapter 2 and verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that great news? We who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, right? Therefore, we are now in Christ. Christ. There's a lot of other passages all throughout the New Testament, and especially in Paul's writings, where he'll, he will assign this terminology of, of being in Christ to equate it to an authentic, genuine faith. So what's the idea? That a genuine Christian's identity is, is not found in the church they attend or the, the group that they belong to. A Christian's identity is so absorbed into Christ that we are quite literally in him. We are in union with Christ. That's the message of the gospel. 
that apart from being in Christ, no person could ever stand on his own merits. No person could ever bring their own good works as satisfactory accomplishments to God. There is no forgiveness, there is no reconciliation apart from those who are in Christ. It is only in Christ that forgiveness is found. You are either in Christ or you are outside of Christ. There is no salvation in anyone else save Jesus Christ. Well, how about you this morning? Have you embraced Jesus as the only means of your salvation? As the only grounds by which you can find forgiveness? I want to encourage you that if you have done that, then you are in Christ. Your faith is authentic. Your faith is genuine. You are in Christ. Your relationship is so entwined with him that it is if you are in Christ. Or not as if, you are in Christ. But if you haven't done that, today, the scripture says, is the day of salvation. Nobody's promised tomorrow. Don't put off till tomorrow what you can secure today. Put all of your trust in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ alone, as the only means of your salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is salvation in no other one in the name Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus. And so Paul was, was boasting about the genuineness of their faith. They were in Christ. And if you put your trust in Christ, you're in Christ this morning. If you have not, again, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave this place without putting your trust in Christ and Christ alone. And so Paul is boasting about the, the genuineness of their faith, which led them to the second thing that Paul will brag about or, or boast about the church that led to a growing faith that was present amongst them. We see that in verse three. We see that they were growing in their faith. Look, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. Your faith is growing abundantly. What I love about this is they weren't just living on what they learned in the past. They were moving forward in their spiritual growth. It wasn't something that just happened in the past and they just remembered it, but no, it was something they were actively moving towards. It was actively growing. In fact, he says, you're growing abundantly. You're growing abundantly. You know, that doesn't happen apart from intentionality. That doesn't happen apart from, from committing to growing in our faith. It takes both inspiration and, and perspiration to have our faith grow abundantly. We must be intentional about that. If, how, many want our faith, how many want your faith to grow abundantly? How many have discovered that doesn't just happen by hanging around other Christians? It doesn't happen just by going to church. It doesn't happen just by listening to a, a worship song. It grows abundantly by digging into the word of God and pursuing the lover of our souls. Can I be honest and tell you, I run into too many Christians that are, that are living off of yesterday's experiences. 
They're living off of yesterday's growing points, yesterday's commitments, yesterday's spiritual high. You start to talk, tell me about your faith, and they go back into the timeline of their past, and they bring forward some things from their past to validate their present because there's nothing actively going on in their life. Somewhere along their line, they've kind of just so dwelt on the past that they're not bringing it into their presence. Jesus taught us to pray by asking the Father to give us this day our daily bread. In other words, yesterday's bread wasn't intended to satisfy us today. God wants us to approach him daily, to pursue him regularly, to go after him daily. Could you imagine? It's kind of, kind of like the married couple that comes to the altar. They say their I do's, and their I do ended with, I'm done now, we're finished. And how many know if, doesn't, if, 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 if that pursuit that began on the altar doesn't happen on a regular basis, that marriage is destined to failure. You've got to throw some gas on the fire. You've got to throw some intentionality there, right? You've got to throw some commitment there. You've got to throw some pursuit in there. You've got to not just love the person with your head. You've got to love that person with all of your being. So too it is with the church. As we read, we read about the church in Revelation that, that we're doing all the right things. They just forgot Christ, their first love. God said, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Can I tell you, God loves when his children pursue him. You know, God will actually in introduce interruptions into your life so that you have to pursue him. He loves you that much. Not because he needs it, because he knows you need it. How about you this morning? Was there ever a time you felt closer to God than you do right now? Was there ever a time that you had a, a greater love for his word, a, a greater commitment to prayer, a, a greater passion to evangelize and share what Christ has done in your life? Has there ever, are you drawing from your past or are you bringing stuff into the present? The instruction of, uh, that, that Jesus gives to the church at Ephesus that lost their first love was, was he, he didn't guilt them and shame them. He just said, remember where you fall and repent and do your first works. May we be a church that doesn't live in our past, but is creating our present so we're, and we're walking towards our future. May our passion for Jesus be so fresh and rich that our past only amens and gives us confidence to move forward in our present. Oh, the invitation that the child of God has to commune with the lover of our souls. May we never settle for an intellectual Christianity because it just does not satisfy. God has created us to, to serve him and pursue him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. The Thessalonian church's genuine faith was a growing faith. May that be said of each and every one of us. May we rejoice from the past, but let it fuel us to move forward to our present and into our future. It was their genuine faith that brought them to a growing faith 
And it was that growing faith which resulted in the next thing that, that Paul will brag about with the church. And it was an increase of love that they had for one another. We see that in the third, the third thing that we see here in the second part of chapter three. They were increasing in their love for one another. He says, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Wow, your genuine faith is manifest in the fact that it's a growing faith. And as you're growing in your faith, that's manifesting itself in your love for one another. As I mentioned last week, the church is not merely an organization, but it is an organism. The living, breathing body of Christ on the earth today. The church is the only physical manifestation of the presence of God on the earth today. What a significant thing when the body of Christ comes together. God's presence is here in our midst, in the church. Jesus puts high value on the church, which is why we're called the, the bride of Christ. He loves the church. Look what he says in John chapter 13 and verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you see the, the significance of what Jesus just did here? He had the audacity to add to the commandments of the Old Testament. He said, a new commandment I give to you. To the listening Jew, this would come across as blasphemy. Nobody has the right to add to God's commandments except God himself. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He brings forth this new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. What an incredible call. How we are to love one another Jesus said, love one another, how? As I have loved you. He says a little bit later on in chapter 15, no greater love has any man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Every time I read that passage, I am, I am humbled by how far short I fall of the standard of what God calls me to. I, would, I recognize I will never realize that fully on this side of eternity, but I pray by God's grace that day after day, week after week, year after year, that I'm growing more and more in love with my Savior and, love, and in love with the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, love one another as, as I have loved you. And then he says, look, and by this, Here's, here's how you will stand out to the world, Jesus said. By this they will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wow. Not by how much you know. That's not how they're going to know you're my disciples. Not by how much you know. Not by how much or what church you attend. Not by how much money you give. You will be ultimately recognized as a follower of Jesus by loving the people that Jesus loves. That's what Jesus said. Now let me be really clear here. Loving one another isn't what makes you a Christian. The only way that happens is by placing our trust in Christ alone. But loving one another is how the world will recognize you're a follower of Jesus. Our love for one another will get the attention of the world. 
and say, you know what? I don't agree with anything they say, but they must be following Jesus. Why? Because they're seeing love amongst one another. What kind of love? The kind of love that lays down lives, their life for one another. And he's bragging about the church. He says they increased in their love for one another. Remember, they're going through some really hard times. They're undergoing persecution. You know, crisis has a wonderful way. Crisis has a wonderful way of, of expediting appreciation and affection for one another. You never love somebody so much as someone who you've been through hardship with, right? That you've had a journey through a crisis with. If we were honest, the times we really come to appreciate and, and love one another the most is when we find we need one another the most. Maybe it's seasons of sickness. Maybe it's seasons of grief. Of grief. Maybe it's a pandemic. Maybe there's some kind of a need. And it's in those moments of trial, in those moments of, of, of pain, that we come to recognize and appreciate and love the body of Christ. The community of Christ is a, is a healing community. That's why the scripture calls us to gather together, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some is. It is when we gather together that our individuality is put aside and we gather together as one bride of Christ and the presence of God is manifest amongst us in no other way in all of the earth. It's powerful and true. It was their growing faith which increased their love for one another. Here's the point. You can't grow closer to Christ and further from his bride whom he loves. You cannot grow closer to Christ and at the same time grow further from his bride whom he loves. How many times have you heard people say, or maybe you said it, hey, I love Jesus, it's just his people I can't stand. The scripture says you're a liar. The scripture says you don't love Jesus because you can't love Jesus and not love who Jesus loves. Those are hard words, but you know what? I didn't write them. Jesus said them. John, certainly under the inspiration of the Spirit, penned those words also in his epistle. 1 John chapter 2, listen to what John writes. He says, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Notice there's nothing here that differentiates about the, the you know, it doesn't say the person who's in the light believes all the right stuff. No, what's going to be manifest is not what we believe up here, but how that's, how that's communicated and manifest in our lives, in our love for one another. John will go on to say, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Right from Jesus' line. He'll go on to say this. He says, look, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Let me just stop there for a second. He is answering the question for the one who says, hey, am I really a Christian? Am I a part of the church of Jesus Christ? Am I really a believer, right? People oftentimes ask themselves that question. And what they oftentimes do is they, they try to see what things do I believe? 
Well, John answers the question for us. He says this. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Look, because we love the brothers. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love his brother abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Listen, he's not downplaying theology. He's not downplaying the importance of understanding the significant truths that the scripture has. He's saying, listen, the fruit that you have embraced those truths will be manifest in the way you love one another. Your theology will be on display in the way you love or don't love the brethren. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives to the brothers. And it gets real uncomfortable. He says, but if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Good question. Little children, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed, in truth. Let our love be made manifest in the way in which we love one another. It was their genuine faith that he was boasting about. It was that genuine faith, which was a growing faith, which increased their love for one another, which enabled them to be the fourth thing that he boasts about. It enabled them to be steadfast through hardship. Look at verse four. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. He's boasting that they were steadfast in hardship. Notice how Paul qualifies what they're going through. He says, in all of your persecutions and the afflictions they were enduring. While we don't know the specifics of what they were going through, clearly it must have been hard enough and difficult enough for them to start believing this lie that they were in the midst of the tribulation period. Paul points out that that the hardship they were facing was bringing the best out in them. It brought out steadfastness and faith. The literal meaning of this word steadfastness is, it's a great Greek word, it's hupomone. Say that word with me. Hupomone, yeah, fun word. Hupomone. Hupomone. It literally means firmly resolved. It means fixed. It means immovable. They were immovable in their faith despite the hardship, despite the challenges. They were hupomone. They were firmly resolved. You know, this is a characteristic that clearly Paul modeled throughout his own ministry. Paul knew what it was to go through seasons of hardship and persecution. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Another translation says, we have this treasure in, in earthen vessels, our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen to Paul. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may also be, may be made manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so that death is at work in us, but life in you. This is written by a man who understood hardship. This is written by a man who knew what it was to go through seasons of, and, of, of turmoil and persecution and all kinds of hardship. But notice, in the most difficult of times, he remained hupomone, steadfast. He was, he was firmly resolved in his faith. I want to encourage you today that you may find yourself in the midst of a storm. Perhaps the, the floods are, are rising up all around you. Your faith can remain firmly resolved because it is God at work in you to do according to his own pleasure. And you see, it is God who will allow hardship, who will allow difficulty into your life and into my life because it becomes a tool in his hands for our sanctification to make us more like Christ. Which is what we see as another character that Paul will boast about in this church. This church was going through a hard time. And Paul was acknowledging, you're right, sometimes it's difficult, but it's not difficulty without a purpose. God is working those things into our lives. And we see the fifth thing that he, he, he boasts about, that they were proven worthy through suffering, right? He said, despite their steadfast, they were steadfast in faith in all their persecutions and all afflictions that they were enduring. He says, look, in verse five, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. He's highlighting, yes, you're going through some things, but this is the very evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. Can I tell you, Paul was not writing to a perfected people, but he was writing to a people who were being perfected. That's what we see here. We see the righteous judgment of God that not only comes upon the unjust, but even comes upon the just. The difference between when, the, when, the, when God deals with his people is there's a purpose. There's a plan. It's to make us more and more like Christ. It's to sanctify us, right? It's not to judge us with no plan whatsoever. God's judgment on his own proves that we are his sons and daughters. Notice the goal of discipline is our sanctification. It's not just like God gets the his kicks out of seeing you and I go through hard times. None of us would get a kick out of seeing someone we love so dearly going through hard times without any purpose in mind. But God, who loves you more than anybody could possibly love you, will allow you to go through difficult times so that his work can be perfected in your lives. And sometimes it's trials, sometimes it's tribulations, sometimes it's even the discipline of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. 
The writer of Hebrews says this, listen, it is for discipline that you have to, I'm sorry, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children, and then you're not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. How many have earthly fathers who disciplined you? Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, right? We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them eventually, (laughs) right? (laughs) Some of us still working through that, right? Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. Sometimes flawed, right? But he, God, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. There's a purpose for his discipline. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. How many say amen? But later, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it or those who learn from it. You see, you can't be a child of God and that at one time or another come under the discipline of the Lord. Unless, of course, you've been perfected. As Christians, we do our best to avoid all kinds of suffering, don't we? But we need to remember that sometimes suffering is the tool of God in our sanctification. As we consider the last, the list of hardships that that Paul placed in 2 Corinthians, listen to how he, he closes out that section. He says, we are afflicted, yet not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, he says, but not destroyed. We pick up in verse 16, he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. You might feel like, this is killing me. And it very well may be. But your inner self is being renewed day by day. Look what it says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or, or temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Man, Paul paints a beautiful picture of how we are to endure those times of trial and tribulation and hardship. Again, we saw Paul, man, afflicted, not crushed, right? Persecuted, not forsaken, right? Perplexed, but not, he recognized, I'm going through some things. But look how Paul viewed those, he calls them light, momentary afflictions. But notice what they're doing. They are working for you. Look, these light momentary afflictions are preparing you, right? Preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. 
Those things that we want to run from, God is using them as a tool in our lives and they are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Look, beyond all comparison, greater than anything you can experience. The scripture says, no eye has seen or ear has heard or even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And sometimes in order to walk in that, we've got to walk through seasons of hardship. But notice when he says something here, very important in verse 18. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, how many know they could have looked to the things that are seen? How many of us get distracted by looking to the things that are seen? These temporary afflictions that we're going through. We can get so caught up and so distracted and so discouraged over these light afflictions that we're dealing. He's saying, no, we didn't do that. He says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. They are eternal. And can I tell you something? When we cross on over to the other side, that which is unseen now will be seen then. And we will walk in what God has for us. Don't be so short-sighted that we fail to recognize that God is working something in us now that is beyond comparison for our tomorrow. What are you looking to? The things that are seen or the things that are unseen? The things that are temporary or the things that are eternal? He said, I'm afflicted, but man, I'm looking, I'm not crushed. I'm perplexed, but man, I am not in despair. I am persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. I'm struck down, but you know what? I'm not looking at that. I'm not destroyed. These light afflictions are preparing me for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Perhaps you're going through the storm this morning. Perhaps you're under the chastening of the Lord. Don't lose heart. It's evidence that God is at work in you. He that began a good work in you, he will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ and he will use every tool necessary in his belt to accomplish that work because we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Don't be discouraged. He's doing a work in your life. That's what he's doing in you. That's what he was doing in the church in Thessalonica. And Paul was telling everybody about it. Let me tell you about my church in Thessalonica. That's what he was boasting about regarding this church. That their faith was genuine. They were in Christ. And the fact that it was genuine was manifesting itself in the fact that they were, their faith was growing daily. They were pursuing and going hard after God. And as their faith was growing daily, they were growing in their love for one another. And as they were doing life together, God gave them what they needed to persevere through hardship. 
And as they persevered through hardship together, they were proven worthy through suffering, knowing that this momentary affliction was preparing them for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Don't get discouraged, church. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you allow these things that Paul saw in the church of Thessalonica, oh, that they might be evidenced in our lives as well. That our faith would be genuine. That it would be growing. That our love for one another would increase. That we would persevere through hardship and that we might be proven worthy through our suffering. Help us, Lord, to not focus on the temporary, but to focus on the eternal. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the things that tend to scream so loud around us. But Lord, let the awesomeness awesomeness of who you are silence the cry of the temporary of the day. And Lord, may we be found faithful and may we make you proud as your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.